Good morning. Hey, I'm glad you all came out this morning. Uh, I can see the, uh, the symptoms of cabin fever here. <laughs> we had it ourselves. <laughs> Did you, you know, how many times in your life do you just go out and drive around in the car just to drive around in the car to be out of the house? <laughs> we found ourselves doing that this past week. But my name's Jim. I'm glad to be here this morning, and I'm glad you can be here. I'm glad that we didn't have to risk our lives to get here. As Dave said, uh, we come every week to look at God's Word because we know that Jesus is speaking to us through God's Word, and we want to hear what He has to say to us. And we're starting a new series in Philippians. We're calling it Risk Everything. And uh, some of the things that people risk in Philippians is uh, they risk participating and partnering together. They risk fellowshipping. They risk in the spread of the good news. They risk in suffering with Christ. And through all that, uh, we want to learn how we can risk our own lives. I know we don't mean that in a physical sense most of the time, but just risk that God is right. He loves us. We can trust him. We can do what he wants us to do because he's a good God. Beginning of the church in Philippi is an amazing story. It's got a bunch of little, little pieces of story in it about different people there. Uh, but there are people who are meeting Jesus. And each one reveal, reveals God's grace and his mercy. Uh, and it shows in a different way how God meets each person where they're at. We're going to look this morning at the man who started the church at Philippi. He was part of a missionary team. And, we're, and I'm titling this, uh, Risk Believing God Changed You. You know, just as I was about to graduate from college, and I realize this is ancient history that we're talking about here, uh, I won the lottery. And it's not the lottery that you think about these days. It was the lottery that they used to draft people into military service. Yeah, and it was at the end of the Vietnam War, and I had heard enough about the conflict in Vietnam that I knew I didn't want to go there. And so I went to the Air Force, thinking I could find a way to escape, and, uh, and they said, well, you can come in here as long as you are uh, qualified to fly. You know, I, <laughs> I just think back at night and go, I had no idea what I was getting into. But I went in. And I took all their tests, and I qualified to fly. And several months after that, I was wearing a blue uniform, and I was learning what it meant to be an airman with shorter hair. And, yeah, and I didn't know what I was going to be. I was completely unaware of what it meant to be a flyer in the Air Force. Uh, got my identity right the day I signed that paperwork, because when I signed that contract with them, I almost didn't sign it because I thought it was going to be four years, and when I came in to sign it, oh no, it's six years. I'm like, what? Six years? You think six years is a long time when you're young and, uh, and you've got your whole life ahead of you, right? Uh, so my identity was established. And then I went through almost two years of training before I went to my first operational assignment, and that was in England. And... Uh, I soon found out what it was going to look like to be somebody in the Air Force because as the newest lieutenant on the block, I got to sit a lot of weekends 
on an alert pad. We call it an alert pad. We had about five or six airplanes out there. Uh, and those airplanes had live nuclear bombs on them. And if we were alerted, we had to be airborne in five minutes, and we were going to be headed east. If you remember where the wall was up, through the wall, you know, somewhere, somewhere over there, I can't tell you. Uh, but it took me years to mature into that identity so that I could be qualified and capable of training other people. Every one of us holds on to some kind of identity, right? Each of us has gained one somewhere along the way, and it may be because of something we do, something that we suffered, something we hope people will see in us on social media, uh, something that culture tells us we are. Each of those things is, is an identity, but as I was in the Air Force, uh, somewhere along the way, God got hold of me and showed me that there's a more important identity that he's given me, and that's an identity in Christ Jesus. Uh, you know, when our identity is centered on what we do, what we're capable of, what somebody else tells us we can do, what we suffer, uh, we're actually ignoring the identity that God has given us in Christ. And I want to help us this morning to see that Trusting God and trusting who he says I am is more important than what other people tell us we are. The scripture we're going to look at is its not very long. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let me read this for us. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice there, maybe you've read some of Paul's other letters. Uh, this is interesting because Paul doesn't use this greeting very often. He's only used it in Philippians, in Thessalonians, and Philemon. That's the only time he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Usually he says, Paul, an apostle called by God. And he does that in those other places because there were significant issues going on where he needed to say, Listen, God made me an authority who has to speak to you. In this letter, he's saying, I love you guys. You are a church that I started. You have supported me. You have cared for me. Paul was on the missionary team with a couple other guys who went and established this church. And I don't know if you've ever supported missionaries before, but you get these things called newsletters. And, and having been a missionary, I know that we have to write these things, right? And what we're trying to communicate is, what do we do in this ministry? What are you putting your money into here? And we try to tell you stories of what God is doing in people's lives through what you're doing. And what we see in this letter from Paul is, he is recounting how they supported him. He is telling them, thank you for that support. He's telling them how they've grown in Christ, and he's encouraging them to grow more. Uh, so it's really more of a missionary letter uh, than it is a doctrinal letter, although it does have some doctrine in it. But here's what we'll be focusing on this morning. How I live and what I'm willing to risk results from believing and living out of my identity in Christ. Let me pray for us as we try to understand this. Father God, you know the pain of this past week many have suffered. Uh, you know the trouble that is still being dealt with as a result of the really bad weather. Uh, show us opportunities to serve others and love others who need that help. Give us strength to persevere in a difficult time. 
Open our eyes to your truth today and help us to see ourselves as you see us. Free us from distractions. Grant us peace. We long to hear from you today for Jesus' sake. Amen. So the first person we see in the letter is is Paul, uh, servant of Jesus Christ. But he didn't always go by that name. Paul actually had two names. He was born a Jew, and he was born in a Roman province, so he was a Roman citizen at the same time. So his second name was Paul. First time that we are introduced to Paul, he was Saul. And you heard that story from Acts today when Lizzie read the story. First thing we're going to look at is that God changed Saul. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So what was Saul's identity before he met Jesus? If you recall from the story that we read, and Paul actually recounts this in Philippians uh, in a different way, uh, the believer's side of what they thought Paul or Saul was doing is in the story that was read this morning. What, what Saul, now Paul, viewed himself as is here. He says, I was a pedigree Hebrew, the best of keeping the law. I was a Pharisee. I was zealous to protect Jewishness from persecuting or by persecuting Christians. And the first time we meet him is in Acts 7. And in Acts 7, uh, Stephen, one of the deacons, was preaching to the Jews, telling them about Jesus. They got so upset by what they were hearing. They were so angry that they took him out and stoned him. Saul stood by holding their coats and he completely agreed with what they were doing. And then in Acts 8, it tells us Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Saul's identity was Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He was the best of the best in his religion and his ethnic group. His priority, persecute Christians. Evidently, Saul thought it was pleasing to God to have all the knowledge that he had, to perform the way he thought he did, uh, in his eagerness to eliminate people that he saw as a threat to his religion. He earned the respect of his fellow Jews because he knew a lot of stuff. He'd, he'd been to school for a long time to be a Pharisee. He apparently had a law-abiding life, and he had this great fervor that we're going to do something about this problem called the way. His identity depended on what he could do. And then he met Jesus. His his life was forever changed. Saul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, became a servant of Jesus, and God gave him a new identity. Suddenly, everything that Paul had memorized, the stuff he had studied, became worthless in establishing his identity. He could no longer see that it was useful for that. And he tells us about that in Philippians. Uh, he says in Philippians 3, 8, 9, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that my gain, I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now God saw him as righteous, not because of his religious striving, but because Jesus died for his sins, 
and he rose from the dead. And Saul believed all that. He believed what God said about him. Saul's life changed radically. He immediately began telling people that Jesus really is the Son of God. What's interesting about that is that once that happened, he also decided to start using his Roman name because God said, I've called you and I want you to go to the Gentiles. And it became, in some ways, more expedient for him to use his Roman name because people recognized that Saul of Tarsus, that guy, they didn't want to talk to him. So Paul's new identity, servant of Christ Jesus. His new priority, tell people about the love of God through Christ Jesus. And here's where it's ironic, but God uses this. The man who ravaged believers became the target of persecution by the Jews, his own people, and also by a lot of the Gentiles. The guy who approved that Stephen got stoned, got stoned himself. But he lived through it. He knew that no matter what happened, no matter where God took him, he was secure in God's love and that God was compelling him to, uh, to tell others about the grace and mercy given to him through Christ Jesus. This is why Paul could say in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And we can see that huge change in Saul's life. He also says, Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So what should we imitate about Paul's life? Well, certainly we don't want to imitate the first part. But his following of Christ, his steadfast faith that God has changed me and I'm not what I was before, is something we need to imitate. We need to see it in other believers. We need to recognize people who are following Christ. They are faithful to him they are trusting in him at all times. And we need to imitate those sucks as they imitate Christ. You know, true freedom from, from the problems we have, from the sin we have in our life, is being a voluntary slave of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul tells us. What's a way for that we can think about this in our own lives? Well, do you have a before I met Jesus, after I met Jesus story in your life? If you do, I think it's really helpful for you to tell it to other people. You could start with your kids. They love to hear stories, right? You can tell your spouse. You can tell friends. You can do this in a small group. It's a really great place to do that. One of our 3 by 5 groups would give you a safe place to do that. But what if you don't have a before I met Jesus story, after I met Jesus story? If you don't, Ask somebody to tell you theirs. Because there are people out there that you know, maybe it's the reason you're here this morning, and they invited you. Ask them to tell you their story of what happened after I met Jesus. Another way to get to know more about this is to read Paul's conversion. He, he gives it to us in several different places in Acts. Uh, but if you start in chapter 9 of Acts and read through chapter 16, you get a really good picture of what was going on in Saul's life. Then he changed to use his name Paul and to see the incredible thing that God did through him. God changed Saul and he can change us. So secondly, we're going to look at 
God changes you. He changed me. The letter says in the second half of that verse, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Uh, This missionary letter is addressed to the believers in Philippi. They're people like us in central Texas. It's really interesting that Philippi was a, a Roman colony. It had Roman army veterans there who actually got benefits because they were Roman citizens, Roman veterans. Uh, There were merchants there. There was, sadly, human trafficking going on there. They had a jail to hold prisoners waiting for their judgment or their execution. All those things, sort of like we have here, right? (laughs) A little different time, but similar. Uh, Some of the people there... uh, as they started out in Acts 16, you'll, you can go read these stories. But Lydia was a religious person. She was already attending services there, praying with other people. And Paul found her and shared the gospel with her. But she was probably wealthy. She was in the upper class because she was selling purple fabric. Purple has always been associated with royalty because it is so expensive to make purple dye. Uh, there was a slave girl who was being trafficked by her owners so that they could make money. And then there was this Roman jailer who was really good at his job, and I suspect that he found his identity in being able to keep prisoners where they belonged uh, and never letting them get out until it was time for them to come out. Each one of those people was changed when they met Jesus, changed in incredible ways. Lydia immediately housed the missionaries and helped support them. The slave girl was freed from the oppression of those people who wanted to profit by the thing that she was able to do for them. The jailer who was torturing Paul and Silas, by the way, he put them in jail and kept them there, immediately became their nurse. He was caring for them. It's really great to see how God can change people and how he can change us. These people were finding probably their identity and what they could do. Our abilities or our lack of abilities often define what our identity is. One of the first questions, you've probably noticed this over your life, that people ask each other, my name's Jim, what's yours? What do you do? (laughs) You know, isn't it interesting that in our culture, probably many cultures, we define who we are through what we do, what our work is, whether we're a homemaker, whether we're married to so-and-so, you know, we, we have a way of doing that. What if people ask you, who are you? <laughs> you know, that's a different question. In God's economy, it isn't about what we do, it's about what he did. Paul calls the, the Philippian saints. Has anybody ever called you a saint? Does that make you uncomfortable? If somebody says, wow, you are such a saint. When we think of saints, sometimes uh, we look to other religions where they designate people saints based on something that they did way back there in the past. And often it's very murky to try and figure out what is it that they actually did that makes this so important. That's not what the Bible's idea of a saint is. God's idea of a saint is people who are trusting Jesus and what he accomplished through his perfect life his death and his resurrection on the cross. 
resurrection from the dead. Saints are Jesus' followers. Saints are viewed by God as set apart. He pursued you. He set you apart. You're his child now. He's made you special in a very different way. He sees saints as blameless. He sees them as morally pure. He sees them in a way that often we don't see each other or see ourselves. But there's one connection that I don't want to miss in, this, in the phrase that's in here. Saints are only saints in Christ Jesus. We're not saints because of the effort we put into life. We're not saints because we worked our way to a much better position in terms of sin. It's not because of our goodness. It's not because of what we know. It's a status given to us by God through Christ. So what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Because, you know, that's really hard to explain. In fact, we can't explain it in one sermon because I think Paul uses that phrase in different ways, like a hundred, over a hundred times in his letters. He's the guy that uses it most. But in Galatians 3, 26, 28, here's what Paul says about it. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's speaking about our new identity. Now, in this, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be any different ethnic groups. God doesn't mean that there's not going to be freedom and slave, that that's totally going to go away in the way we live right now. He's not saying there's not going to be male and female among us. He is saying that we have a spectacular single identity that's spiritual in Christ. And that identity is we're daughters and sons of the Most High God. He loves us as much as he loves his son. And he is going to love us no less at any time. He's always going to care for us and he's going to bring us to himself someday so that we can be with him. In worldly concept, we have trouble understanding it, right? Because we look horizontally. We look around us and go, okay, what do I do? What do they do? And we tend to start to stratify. Okay, well, look at me. Uh, Our new identity puts us all on the same level. We are all spectacularly incredibly gifted by God to be his sons and daughters. And it's a vertical relationship. It's what he does, not what we do in our horizontal things. No identity that we construct is comparable to that. We just can't even come close. Uh, but here's, I think this is a good thing that we need to think about. If I understand that my identity is in Christ, then all those things that I do the identity that came to me because of suffering, uh, identities that we chose because it helps us feel good about ourselves, they can all be healed or changed. They can become better because we understand that we are loved, that I, am, I can be healed, that God is taking care of me all the time. I can serve other people because I know that God's taking care of me. I can risk doing that. In the midst of all this, how do you think God sees us? Well, uh, one way we hear about this is that Christ became sin so we could become righteous. You know, that's a paraphrase of what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. But it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we in him 
might become the righteousness of God. God did that for our sake. He didn't do it so that he could let us feel better about ourselves. He did it so that we could have eternal life in Christ. Jesus became real sin so that we could become true righteousness. The sinless man became sin. The sinful man became righteous through faith in the sinless man. Sometimes we think of that in hypothetical thoughts. You know, we think, oh yeah, well, hypothetically, in theory, Christ became sin. No. No, it's a fact. He became sin so that we could become right, truly righteous, really righteous. Do you see you the way God sees you? He sees those who trust in Christ Jesus as righteous. He sees the completed, mature you, even when you're still alive on this earth and still sinning. He's not waiting for you to get better. He doesn't expect you to work your way to righteousness. He's not having you do things so you can become acceptable to Him. He already accepts you. He already loves you. He even likes you. Part of the application I'd ask you to think about for this is, when you look in the mirror, when you fail, how do you talk to yourself? (laughs) Somewhere, several months ago, I I told somebody in one of our men's groups that I really wanted to, uh, to be prayed for about my impatience. Uh, I'm especially impatient, especially with myself. And it was really interesting because uh, recently I had to put the transmission and stuff back into my one truck for like the fifth time. (laughs) And, okay, I got done with it. And I thought, huh, that's really interesting. I didn't throw any tools. I didn't yell at myself. I didn't call myself an idiot as I usually do. And I thought... Oh, God is answering my prayer. I'm not being as impatient as I have been in the past. Now, I still have some growing to do, okay? Because this is something that just hangs on. Uh, But it was just incredible to me that God changes us, right? He answers our prayer. So think about, okay, how do I treat myself when I fail? What does that tell you about your relationship with God and with Jesus? Something else you can do is read Romans 8. First verse. There is no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, we're condemning ourselves all the time because we're often unkind to ourselves. God isn't that way. So read the whole of chapter 8 of Romans. Last thing I want to look at is that God brings us to maturity. He wants us to trust what he says about us. It's not some power of positive thinking scheme. We're not going to put notes on the mirror and say, okay, believe this today. Uh, Just believe in yourself. Just trust that you're good and you can do it. Nope. We're going to trust in the God for what, or God above who has done something in our life that we can't possibly do. Every believer is going to have sin issues in their life without fail. We all do. There are two ways to face that reality. We can focus on working on our sin 
in order to gain acceptance, or we can focus on trusting in what God's already done. Alyssa, can you throw that slide up there with the arrows on it? So there's the two choices. First one, work on my sin issues. We often get trapped in this because we've been hearing, even though it may not have been preached in the church has been, we've been hearing that we have to work really hard to get better or God's not going to like us. If we do that, there's a couple of things that can happen. One is that we will never feel like we're accepted by God because our sin issues never end. They just don't. As you get older, and unfortunately I know this from experience, you start to see more and more how you sin in ways that aren't so evident at first, but in the ways we think, in the ways we treat other people, in the ways we fail to do things. Uh, And so what happens in another vein is that you actually conquer some of your sin issues. And then what happens? We get proud. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Where'd we end up again? We're still, we're in this mess with our sin issues and we can't get out of it. If we start trusting who God says I am, he's the one who is responsible for maturing us. Uh, God wants us to mature into who he says we already are, right? We have to trust that that's true. We saw this in the past week. Uh, it's really interesting because uh, Dave has mentioned it and Chris has mentioned it and I just thought about it as I was looking at this. I thought, look how many times we've seen people doing things for other people this week. And I say this as trying to explain what does maturity in Christ look like? So what you saw was people who were growing in their maturity in Christ and they were loving other people. But how were they doing it? Well... There were saints in Christ Jesus who were risking serving others by distributing water, offering their homes as refuge, contacting others and encouraging them and praying for them, using the resources given to them by God to help others. Maturity looks like this. People, saints, set apart by God, risking loving other people. We saw saints in Christ following Jesus' example. They were humbling themselves to serve others. And you can read Jesus' example in John 13 and see as he washed his disciples' feet, he was saying, if you want to lead, you have to learn how to serve. You have to learn how to love folks. We saw saints in Christ Jesus who wept this week for people who were weeping. Uh, We saw saints in Christ Jesus this week rejoicing with those who were rejoicing. We saw saints in Christ Jesus who risked their time, energy, and resources, giving themselves as messengers and helpers so the love of God could be seen and experienced by other people. Saints in Christ Jesus knew their life is a gift intended by God to serve other people. It's really encouraging, as Dave said, to see the body of Christ doing these things. That's you serving each other, loving each other. Maturity in Christ looks like Loving other people. You know, none of us have obtained or attained perfect maturity in this life. We won't. Because we have a sin problem that we're not capable of dealing with. But there's really good news. God started something, right? 
He started something. He says in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. God's going to finish what he started in us. But what about the sin issues? I know it's probably a question of mine. You know, I know we're supposed to do something about that. How does that get taken care of? Well, God's the only one capable of resolving sin. We don't have the capacity to manage our sin. And when we say, as we said on that first line, if we say, I'm going to be working on my sin issues, if we could resolve sin in our own strength, Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. We can't resolve sin. God can, and he's going to finish the work of transformation he started in this. It's an interesting quote from a book called True Face, and I'm going to read it twice because, you know, it's a little startling at first. What it says is, God is not interested in changing you. He already has. Your new DNA is already set. God wants you to believe that he has already changed you so that he can get on with the process of maturing you. It takes a while to sink in, right? Because we find it so hard to believe. Because we know that some things have taken so long or not changed at all in our lives that we have trouble believing that God doesn't see us that way. He sees us as already changed. God is not interested in changing you. He already did. Your new DNA is already set. God wants you to believe that he has already changed so that he can get on with the process of maturing you. I've got some resources that if you want to look at this further, uh, these are really helpful in understanding those concepts. The first one is a cure, which we've mentioned many times from up here. Uh, True Face was written before that by the same folks. has a lot of the same material, but also has uh, some expansions of material in there. And then Redemption is a great book by Wilkerson. Uh, really helpful. He says it in different ways, but still the same message. And for some, if you want something to do on a day-by-day basis, this is a devotional um, by the True Face folks. So we found really helpful. And this is the second year we're actually using this one. And uh, it really helps you see your new identity and see how that plays out in your life in Christ. So you can take a look at those if you want to. They're available anywhere on Amazon. So we have the DNA of righteousness. Even though we're not mature, God sees us as righteous. I chose uh, this picture. You're going to be astounded at it and go, what is that about? How many of you know what that is? <laughs> right, okay. You know, lots of times when we were kids, we called those locusts. But that is not a locust. That is a cicada. And I chose the cicada for a couple of reasons to, to do an example about what DNA means to us as Christians. Um, because the cicada is a very interesting creature. It, that's what it looks like when it's mature, but when it lays eggs, they're about the size of a grain of rice, and they put it in a, in a groove in a tree limb. And so the egg doesn't look anything like a cicada, but it's got the DNA of a cicada. It's really a cicada. And after some time, it grows into a nymph, and it changes and falls to the ground, and it burrows down in the ground and actually lives on the tree roots, and it stays in there for almost 17 years most of the time. And then it comes out, and it looks like that brown shell up there, and it starts to come out of its exoskeleton. Now, as a kid, 
boy, 10-year-old boys love these things. And here's why, because you can take that exoskeleton and stick it on a girl's shirt and go, ah, you know, so I used to love to scare the girls with it. But it is really this incredible, very simple insect that doesn't live very long, and it takes a long time to mature. Okay, that's much like us, right? We may not look like Christ in everything that we're doing. But God sees us like Christ. He sees us as righteous. We don't know how long the process is going to take, right? We we have no idea. But we're each in a process that God has established for us that he started and he's going to finish. And so if we're trusting that God says we are in fact in Christ and we are righteous because of that, uh, we know that we can trust he's at work in the process. Uh, trusting God enables us to risk doing what he asks or commands right humbly trusting that God will complete what he started the humble part there attracts God's grace it's when we get caught up in ourselves and thinking we can do it that we find ourselves not finding our relationship with God really close because our pride gets in the way Another question you're probably surely asking, but what about working out our salvation? Aren't we supposed to do that? Where does our effort come in this process? That's a great question because there is supposed to be effort. Here's the problem. Sometimes we view our effort as gaining God's acceptance. And we ought to be viewing our effort as, well, God did this for me. God has made me one of his. He has given me identity in Christ. I can do what he asked me to do. I can risk talking to other people. I can risk loving other people. I can risk being what he wants me to be. And I can put effort in because of what he did. I'm not doing it because I need to get his love. I've already got it. And here's a really cool thing that goes with all that. The more you find yourself the more you love other people, the less you sin. Remember that sin problem? How does that go away? Not because I'm going to kill it and kill it and kill it. It goes away because I start loving other people as Christ loved other people. When you're loving other people, you aren't sinning as much. I'm going to give you some interesting application here and. And please go home and do this. It'll, it'll be an interesting thing. I want to hear from you and hear out what you found. I would like you to, to go home and draw a picture of you, your sin, and Jesus. And I'm not going to tell you where things ought to be in that. You, you draw it the way you want to draw it. And then think about, okay, how does the way I positioned my sin or the way that I positioned Jesus, how does that reveal how things are being handled in my life. How is Jesus working with me in my life? How am I viewing Jesus in my life or my sin? Just something to think about. And then, second application. Hey, you're going to hear a lot more from Philippians. So get familiar with it. It only takes like 30 minutes to read the letter. And you can do that several times through this week. Just to wrap up, you know, when I went into the Air Force, uh, 
I had no idea what my life was going to look like. I didn't know what I had to learn. I didn't know how many times I was going to fail. I actually never knew what my usefulness to the Air Force was going to be. It took a long time to figure that out. And even then, you know, I spent 23 years in there, and you're still you're learning stuff all the time. In the same way, when God calls us to himself, uh, we often don't know what our usefulness is going to be in this life. But God has something for us that he wants us to do. The baseline thing is he wants us to love other people because he loved us. Our maturity isn't going to result from what we do. It's going to be a result of what God is doing in us and through us. His grace and mercy and faithfulness are things that are going to help us grow and mature. But we've got to trust that I am who he says I am. I am righteous because he made us righteous. Let me pray for us. God, you know uh, that we have a long way to go in understanding what it means to be in Christ. It's almost impossible for us to understand what you have done because we live here on earth and we see ourselves and we know that we got a problem. Help us, God, to trust that you've resolved that, that you're in the midst of transforming us, that our lives are changing by your power and through your grace. Help us to trust that it's all true and that you're taking care of us. In Jesus' name, amen.